Hello and welcome to Global Council's Geopolitics of podcast. Regular listeners will know that the point of this pod is to shine a light on the technical and technological debates that we think will underpin the political struggles of the near future. I'm John Garvey. I am Global Council's Practice Director for International Policy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Kay Firth Butterfield. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, John. Kay is the Head of Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at the World Economic Forum and a member of its Exco. She is recognized as one of the foremost experts on AI ethics and governance. She's a former human rights barrister, judge, technologist, and entrepreneur. She was the world's first chief AI ethics officer, and she also runs her own podcast in AI We Trust, which I highly recommend to all our listeners. I'm going to start by asking you to actually just explain a bit more about your own career trajectory and interest in this field. How did you how did you move from law and human rights into the world of AI ethics? Yeah, people ask me that question a lot, John. And I what I say is that, you know, there is always that golden thread that holds my random, apparently random career together. Um, and that is the my desire to to help those who need need help, be that people who are having their human rights um, affected adversely, or be that in artificial intelligence, where we know that there are huge benefits to be had. But there are also, as we've seen, particularly in the last few years, lots of negativities that we really need to cure so that actually people still have their human rights in an AI age. And so, yes, there is a very tight chain that runs through that career. And could you just explain um, for our listeners a bit what the World Economic Forum does in this space? How do you how do you cohere and convene debates? How do you bring companies together? Um, What role do you play in the policymaking process, if you like? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, everybody knows us for Davos, um, where obviously we convene all the world's leaders, um, be they business or governmental, um, civil society or academic. Or academic. Uh, but what I do specifically uh, with the AI team is we do that convening, but on separate pieces of policy that, that needs to be made be it self-regulation, so convening companies to help them think through, for example, responsible AI um, and how they would use AI responsibly in, for example, their human resources work or how they would use AI responsibly if they're a social media company, et cetera, right through if you're a healthcare company and you're going to start uh, using chatbots What's the right policy to have in place in order to make sure that you have that responsible AI element to it? So there's the company aspects. And then there is the global um, government policy aspects. We have worked with many governments around the world. We have uh, 16 different offices around the world in different countries. Um, which are centers for the fourth industrial revolution that we work with. But um, what we aim to do is to make sure that whatever we do, be it with a government or with a business, it's scalable. And to give you an example of that, um, we did work with 
the UN, a number of countries, police forces, and um, Interpol around how law enforcement should use facial recognition. And uh, through Interpol, that's now going to be rolled out across 190 different countries. And we have now heard that um, elements of it are going to be used in a standard that will be related to the European AI Act. So it's that sort of global impact that we're hoping to make. That's a great example of how policy can evolve through, I suppose, supranational institutions eventually down into, well, we assume eventually down into national legislation. But can you just say a bit more about how you how that area was chosen in the first place? What's the what's the original genesis? Yes. So what we do is we look for pieces of work that either need doing and nobody other than the forum can do it. So, you know, looking to the strengths of the forum in terms of convening, in terms of being an impartial space. Um, So that obviously was the uh, facial recognition and law enforcement it needed doing, um, but it did need that uh, level uh, of impartiality that we were able to bring to it. And, And then other projects really are, working on how do we move the needle. So, for example, we, we we worked with the UK a few years ago on how do governments think about procurement of artificial intelligence because you can effectively softly govern AI by procuring it and having good rules around procurement. And you can change those rules, whereas if you legislate it's really hard to get legislation in the first place, and then it's really hard to amend it. So this tool enables governments that are using the procurement work that we did, and there are many now across the across the globe, to actually sort of iterate as they learn more about AI and more about the AI they want to buy. It enables them to iterate their soft governance. So, so what you've just described um, on procurement, I suppose it, it seems to me that underneath that, there's there's a sort of normative point of view that is a WEF point of view that there should be, as far as possible, sort of global rules and a form of governance behind it. Is is that right? And how how does the WEF come to that view in the first place? Yes, we definitely feel that there need to be some rules around the responsible use of artificial intelligence. Uh, as I said, you, um, whether it, that's regulation, I think is hard to know. But in some cases, you do need to have an enforcement mechanism And regulation, one could argue, will be the only tool that gives you that. But equally, if you look at soft governance and procurement, if your company is not actually abiding by the rules and loses the contract, that seems to me to also be a way of enforcing what the government wants to see in this area. It definitely is. Um, I do want to. I do want to sort of take you deeper into uh, some of those possibilities for regulation. But before we do that, could we could we just zoom out a little bit? So 
you have a unique seat, I would say, on um, all of the debates that are going on about AI and machine learning at the moment. And it does feel that we're we're at a kind of hinge point in terms of in terms of the use cases. Could you just say something about where you see the most exciting positive benefits of AI that are emerging at the moment and also where you see the biggest risks? Easily the biggest risks are still in responsible AI. We are seeing companies begin to have responsible AI teams. One of the problems is that how to be responsible is not well taught at the moment because it's a breaking field. And so what we don't want is responsible AI to become the greenwashing of AI. You know, we're doing a lot of work to try and make sure that that those people who are responsible for development of AI in their company can get the education that they need, can put their hands on the right documents and things like that. Uh, So the responsible AI piece is fundamental because we see metaverse coming up really, really quickly. Mm. And metaverse is essentially an application. It's called a different name, but it's essentially an application of AI. And uh, but it puts all of the problems of AI on steroids. So we really need to deal with with AI. And then I think beyond AI, we just uh, create the world's first principles for good good practice in quantum. So we are keeping an eye on quantum as well, um, which we are hoping to get ahead of instead of with AI, we keep running along behind. Um, in terms of what, what AI is going to be capable of and great at, um, I would pick three things probably. One is healthcare. Um, we already see some really good applications of AI in healthcare. Uh, we did some work with the government of Rwanda where we used um, chatbots to triage in healthcare. And in a country where you have one doctor for 27,000 people, using AI and just triage is going to be better than the healthcare that they had before. So I think we'll see lots of good applications in healthcare. Um, I hope very much that we will see thoughtful applications of AI in education. I use the word thoughtful because we are essentially experimenting on our most vulnerable population. And so we need really good guardrails for education and because of children. And um, and then I think that uh, the other area that I'm very excited about is climate, um, both in climate modeling for adaptations so that businesses can rethink where they put their factories, Governments can think about how they how their population might move, where to safeguard um, current settlements and where to abandon current settlements. So I think that that's a very exciting area of AI. Um, and um, and then we also have done some work with some companies and governments around the world to predict where wildfires are going to occur. And that's really important because if you take the campfire in California, it actually undid all of California's work on carbon emissions over the last 10 years just through that one fire. Wildfires are particularly dangerous to our climate. And so 
using AI to predict where they're going to happen and be able to address them before they happen it will, will be huge. It seems to me that practically every day now you read about uh, a new amazing breakthrough in machine learning, particularly when I, I think particularly particularly in healthcare, I think over the last week there, there was a new study which showed how Alzheimer's could be diagnosed early purely through the use of retinal scans, which obviously has enormous implications for, for how quickly it could be treated and at cost. It, I suppose it seems to me that if, if you think about that kind of model, or indeed you think about the model of predicting wildfires, it's easier to put guardrails in, in terms of how the models are going to be treated and used by by humans, because you're clearly going to have to have some sort of human interface. I suppose in education, the problem I see is you can you can conceive of a world in which every child, uh, sort of relatively low marginal cost, is provided with some uh, some sort of personalized learning robots, but it's very difficult to put the same argument in place where you have adequately insulated um, that situation from something pretty terrifying going wrong. Yeah, um, absolutely. Do you categorize, I know that the EU has, the EU AI Act, which we should move on to it's later in the conversation, has begun to do this in terms of categorizing very high risk and minimal risk and unacceptable risk. Have you begun to do that in your own work at the WEF? Do you do you see very different scales in terms of the sectors? Yes, absolutely. We do we do that in terms of the projects that we pick to do, or the work that we pick to do, because um, you know, obviously children are really 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 important. And if you think about the geopolitical issues around um, education, uh, and we are seeing all over the world different politicians, what different stripes of politician wanting different things in education. And so if you then add into the mix a child under seven where their values are still being formed, you have to be very, very careful that what you teach the child through AI um, is not necess- is not going to be, oh, I believe in dictatorship, for example. Um, so it's ex- they're extremely dangerous potential tools. And that's why we need to have some really good law around them, because they can also be fantastic, because, of course, AI will be able to adapt its teaching style to the needs of the child. So one of the things that we have been doing in this area is we have the Smart Toy Awards. We're having the second set of awards this year. And the idea of that is really to try and create some very basic guidelines for what would be responsible AI used in education. And, you know, I've had it said that uh, smart toys can only be afforded by rich people in the global north. But um, if we can set guidelines for them, then as we continue to develop and hopefully have education in the global south with AI as well, 
um, then we have at least some tools that we can work with at the moment. I think the other thing um, that we have to think about, especially if we're thinking about the geopolitical issues, is where are these toys coming from? Uh, what data are they collecting? Are they selling our children's data to third parties? Do we want that? Uh, are they using facial recognition? So there are some really powerfully important pieces of giving your child a smart toy rather than just thinking that you bought it the best Christmas gift ever. And uh, underlying all of that um, is the question of whether or not, um, especially if you are providing these toys from the global north to the global south, as you say, there is some measure of exporting values from one society or not even one society but from one fairly small group to another you you touched on bias uh earlier in the conversation one of one of the main things that people seem to worry about in this field is that there is there is really such a small group of people making such consequential decisions about how the technology is configured. Um, and AI is already a general purpose technology. It is present across huge numbers of sectors and industries. But the actual number of people that understand how the algorithms work um, is still very, very tiny. And it, it strikes me that this does happen as most technologies emerge, but it's hard to find a historic parallel where you have something with such broad application that is understood and in fact programmed by such a small number of people who do tend to be um college educated white middle class liberals in you know fairly fairly well a small number of cities around the world how how do you think that problem is being addressed now. Where do you, where do you see um, where do you see innovation in dealing with that issue of bias? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not I'm not sure that it's necessarily right that the that the people coding are necessarily white. There are a lot of people from the subcontinent of India, mm. and of course, huge numbers in China. And uh, I think if you look at any of those. Uh, toys that I was talking about, the bulk of them will say made in China on them. Um, and so, but you're right in that um, bias is, is caused by historic data. And we don't have enough data about um, people of color. We don't have enough data about women. We don't have enough data about half of the world because um in the global south, they're not collecting the amounts of data that we're we're using at the moment for training. And as you rightly say, um, a lot of global north is being ex exported to global south, and and that's particularly dangerous. For example, in healthcare, you can't have tested a product on a lot of white people and then export it into Africa. It's just dangerous to do. So we have to tailor made. We have to use the data that is properly from the country that we want to help or work with. The other thing is that a lot of these people who are coding are, are men and they are in their 20s and 30s. 
And that in itself brings a bias because, you know, I'm an old white woman. How it's hard for somebody who's in their 20s and 30s to even think about old age, let alone create tools that help with old age. And so it's the, the, the biases are just end up piled on one another if you're not really, really careful and have really good standards for, for um, looking at how you they create, create the tools right from the very beginning. So what we say is that a good practice is to have um, at the beginning, your computer scientist actually working with other people who don't necessarily look like them and who come from different academic backgrounds and, and a lot of humanities. So, you know, STEM is the, is the cause celeb, but if we don't have those humanities in there, we actually create bad AI. And are you seeing any particular particular verticals or areas of work where that sort of um, that process of really trying to collect data from different demographics and join um, the STEM approach with a sort of policymaking approach much further upstream? Are you seeing particular examples of where that's happening? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think in all of the what I would call major AI players in the U in the US, uh, you are definitely seeing uh, big teams uh, thinking about responsible AI um, and understanding that um, their product depends upon um, how well it is designed for different different groups of people. Um, so you are seeing that. Uh, in the UK, for example, you're definitely seeing it. The UK is quite advanced in terms of responsible AI. And you've got the Alan Turing Institute, you've got the Ada Lovelace Institute, you've got the um, Future of Intelligence uh, work based out of Cambridge. And um, you've and the UK has really been a leading player in this area, and so um, you're definitely seeing companies, AI companies, in the UK really creating or having founded the whole concept. Um, and I'm thinking of DeepMind. You know, the 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 responsible AI work took a giant leap forward when they wanted an ethics advisory panel when they sold out to Google. So you feel that at this point, um, the concept of responsible AI is pretty well embedded, uh, at least across at least across the Western world? Yes. Well, um, it's becoming more and more embedded. What we need to see is CEOs actually understanding that it's a, an important factor in their company and not simply saying, okay, how can we use AI to generate more profit? Um, there needs to be the balance there because otherwise when you simply have the, the technical people told to go create AI to to produce more money, that's where you begin to see the failures in the responsible AI piece. Yes. You mentioned greenwashing earlier. I, I think one of the risks is 
uh, was a risk and an opportunity, depending on which way you see it, that a responsible AI becomes something similar to ESG. Obviously, an opportunity in the sense that ESG is very well embedded, but also a risk in that it becomes like ESG in its um, sort of most cursory formulation, something that's essentially an afterthought, which uh, which companies bolt on to existing practice. But I think what you're saying is that, right, you have to have responsible AI by design from, from the outset of the innovation process. Yeah. Totally. Um, not, and you, you need to think about it at the very beginning of the design throughout the whole development. And in many cases, you know, what you're letting out in the world. So post sale, you need to be thinking about whether those algorithms will need attention post sale as well. And that's why the, the forthcoming European Union AI Act is so important because it will actually hopefully put it on the, on the agenda of CEOs, um, as anybody working with Europe. Um, also, I think that the, uh, Bill of Rights, the AI Bill of Rights that was just published this week in the US, um, is part of a mechanism of trying to make sure that companies get it right and that consumers understand much more about what's happening when they're using AI. What, what are the other core areas um, that you think we should we should consider when we think about how companies are going to have to build trust? You mentioned privacy as well, and there is obviously there is obviously a massive difference in how privacy concerns are treated between Europe, US, and China. Um, do you see possibilities for how approaches could converge, or do you think that we are set for three very different worlds? I think we're fairly set for three different worlds, but um, what we what we need to keep an eye on is the way that um, different countries use AI. So we know, for example, about credit scoring in the uh, in China. But the Guardian had a really good article this week, or maybe last about the use of license plate readers um, to track people who are having abortions um, so that criminal cases can be brought against them. And that's, that's interesting because it brings up that issue of trust and it also brings up the, the it can be a, a hammer or, or a benefit. Mm. You know? So... Uh, Abortion is illegal in many states in America, so therefore should AI be used to assist um, the, in the law, uh, enforcing the law, or at some stage is, is there going to be, is, or does that breach some of the trust that we have in society of not being surveilled? Um, so in the US we don't, think we're surveilled but maybe we're surveilled more more than we are that also creates huge reputational risks for companies and you can imagine the ferrari if it came out that company x was supplying 
the supplying the algorithm by which uh, states were working out who had had an abortion across state lines and were therefore using that as material for prosecution, there would you would expect a very significant backlash against that company. Well, maybe, and maybe what they would say is, it, we create the algorithms. It's up to the states how they use them because you know the states have the laws, and the states are elected. Those, you know, the people who pass the laws are elected by the constituents in the states. So it's really hard. And I think the abortion one in America is particularly mm. interesting because uh, more people believe in abortion than don't. And yet there are so many people in states that um, where abortion is banned. And so it is a it's a fantastic use case Um depressing use case uh, to really sort of see that play out between trust in the technology, use of the technology and the law. It's, it's, it's a fascinating and very difficult to ne negotiate area for, for most companies. Um, I just wanted to touch on one more uh, area where I think trust is trust is going to be incredibly important and incredibly difficult, which is explainability. So I know I know this is something that you have um, focused on a bit in in several of your podcasts. That it's often going to be very difficult once a particular algorithm is embedded within um, a decision making process. The person on whom that decision making process impacts to find out exactly why that decision has been taken and. You know, famous examples of this are in things like access to insurance, but you can also you can also imagine uh, very difficult situations in healthcare or indeed in education, which we in fact saw uh, last year in the UK with the problems with uh, the algorithm which predicted uh, children's GCSE results. How do you see that debate on explainability evolving? And again, what what can be done in terms of trying to create something of a something of a sort of explicable level playing field? Yeah, um, I think that we are going to have to move there. Um, simply because the European AI Act is going to force us to, to, to move there in terms of the, as you said, the, they have this risk-based system. So the highest risk um, areas, which include, in fact, human resources, for example. What we have, <clears throat> what we've done is we have produced um, guidelines for how to actually think about correctly using um, AI in, hu in human resources. And so if you follow the guidelines, you are doing the best that can be done at the moment. What, there are a number of small startup companies who are now springing up to address this issue of explainability and or accountability. And the way that they do it is that they test they test the inputs into the algorithm by virtue of, for example, did the training of this algorithm incorporate the rules of the, your particular nation? So let me give you an example. Um, in the United States, we have the Civil Rights Act. It um, provides for effectively anti-discrimination legislation. 
And so if you are going to design a tool that decides whether someone gets a mortgage or not, then you have to make sure that when you are creating the algorithm, you um, you created it with a mind to what that legislation requires. Interesting. So, uh, one one of the phrases uh, that I've heard that I've heard used a bit of, around what you're describing is regulatory sandboxes. In other words, sort of sealed off areas, I suppose, ideally sealed off from the internet where a company or a sector can trial an approach and apply machine learning or deep learning, um, deep learning algorithm to an area of work and see what kinds of results it delivers before that is then unleashed on the population at large. Is is that the kind of approach that you're describing here? And is that something that is also perhaps more scalable? Um, yes, sadly, we don't see enough of that. <laughs> um, so basically, at the moment, it's still a bit of a wild west. You come up with an idea as a startup, and if you can get funding for it, then you roll with the idea. Um, in the UK, uh, they did a lot of financial regulatory sandboxes, and um, uh, it seems that the um, the sector benefited from that. And do you think that do you think that could be applied more widely through the WEF, for example? Um, I don't know if you are running these kind of sandboxes yourself, but is that the kind of thing where, again, in specific verticals, whether you're thinking transport or education and so on, you could create sort of walled gardens in in which to experiment to try and try and see off some of some of the some of the more frightening impacts that we've talked about. Yes, so effectively that's what we do when we scale a project. So what we when we think about work, we we do the landscaping, we bring a lot of different actors up to a hundred, sometimes more, into the space who can advise on the work that we're doing. And uh and then we create something, but we know very definitely that uh it's not necessarily going to be right the first time round. And so we pilot it. And it's in that piloting that we're actually effectively creating a sandbox. So if I go back to that example in Rwanda, we piloted it in Rwanda so that in with a, a small sector of the population so that we could see what the outcomes of that, are, that is. Before then, we create we we release a final tool that then anybody can use. And I suppose if on one side of the spectrum you have um, these kind of sandboxes where experiments can be scaled up, if you like. In effect, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the EU's AI Act, which we we skirted around a bit. But as we said, that that is it looks set to become sort of preeminent uh global regulation um i know a lot of experts expect it to exert a similar effect to what gdpr has done on data so even though it is for the eu it will exert an extraterritorial impact because of the size of the market that most people will want to be exporting into do you think that the risk-based system that the ai 
access out. Do you think that is likely to be the essence of a global standard or, or at least the sort of global scaffolding on which standards are going to be built? Um, I, do, I agree with you that it's going to it's likely to have the same ripple effect as GDPR. Uh, I think that we are a long way away from seeing anything in coming out of the US that is effectively a competitive regulatory mm. mechanism um, for the West. And uh, so, you know, I mentioned the Bill of Rights. It is voluntary. Um, and has no no enforcement mechanisms to it. So we're at that point in the US. So therefore, any um, any Western country with similar values to the EU really can only look to the EU. Uh, what I think will be more interesting, perhaps, is to see how countries that trade with China um and what they adopt what what variety of regulation they adopt so you can i think you could see some of the some of the problems that we've seen between the superpowers in um africa and latin america still playing out um through ai and what regulation and what approach people take um, that, sorry go on <laughs> you asked me whether I think the risk-based approach is the right approach. I think for the time being, it's the really the only approach we can take. Do you do you see um do you see at the WEF uh instances of different countries being drawn to different approaches? So uh notwithstanding the fact that the EU the EU Act obviously isn't in force yet and is unlikely to be in force for a couple of years. Do you see evidence, I suppose, of countries preferring access to the Chinese model and the, you know, the price and the scale that that implies to what is being developed in the West? Well, let's talk about let's talk about influ country influence uh you know how so the state department has has just created a new body to create foreign policy influence around artificial intelligence and other technologies um if you are a country in need of ai you are looking to other countries perhaps to support you in developing a sector or helping you with your healthcare or collecting your data or whatever. And so um, all the geopolitical issues that we've previously seen with foreign aid and development aid and things like that as between the superpowers um are likely now to be played out around ai yeah i completely agree and to some extent this does seem to me to be a sort of extension of the debate about china's belt and road initiative and western attempts to provide a counterpoint which is something we've focused on quite a lot here uh and you also 
I, I forget the name of it, but we've seen this through the EUS Trade and Technology Council as well. There have been several statements about cooperation on AI and the development of trustworthy AI mm -hmm. through that, which are, if not explicitly, very obviously attempts to say we are going to develop a model based on Western democratic values, which is entirely distinct from that of China. Mm -hmm. And with a view towards countries uh, in the global south, in Africa, and so on, this is this is the model that this this is the model that will be required, or if sorry, if not required, this will be the model that is essentially being part of being part of the broader Western alliance. Because obviously, once you are, you know, if you are basing your critical infrastructure or your law and order systems on Chinese AI and data collection methods that has sort of fairly one-way implications. Yeah, it's a huge debate that we are not having sufficiently loudly, I think, <laughs> because um, it, will, it will definitely change the balance of power um because the you know depends upon which countries line up between, behind which um which type of approach to ai and in in some in some senses it seems to me that uh though governments for example through this trade and technology council have really alighted on the importance of this debate now and you are seeing you are seeing if you like a, a real politicization of the issues which were political anyway to some extent companies have been further down that track than governments for some time in calling for the development of standards and perhaps those perhaps the sort of interests of companies and the interests of governments are beginning to align a bit more in that debate now yeah i think so um it, I mean, it is hard for companies to know what to do. That's another reason that I really liked doing the procurement work because it gave um, companies at least some, some standards or some principles to follow. If you want to sell to X government, you have to follow these principles and standards and you have to do X. So I think that, that the market, you know, it's always this, innovation versus um, regulation. But actually, if you are thinking about putting a lot of money into a startup, then knowing that your startup product is going to be saleable is actually a great advantage to you. That point of hope but uncertainty is, I think, uh, a very good point to end on. Huge thanks to UK. Once again, I'd, I'd recommend both your podcast and the web wider work on these issues for companies looking to engage. And as usual, if you or your work has any questions related to any of this, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Thank you very much.